Welcome to the Louisiana Delta Crop Podcast, covering agriculture and all things related in East Carroll, Madison, Tinsall, Concordia, and Catahoula Parishes. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of the Louisiana Delta Crops Podcast. I'm R.L. Frazier. I'll be your host for this afternoon. I have here at the Northeast Station with me today, Dr. Josh Copes. Uh, and we're going to be talking about, or Josh is going to bring you some updates on some uh, outcome from a recent uh, farm visit he and I made earlier this week. We'll be joined later on uh, in the podcast by Mr. Dennis Burns with an interview from Dr. Josie Rosenda. She is our new nematology person working out of the Baton Rouge office. And then later on, Ms. Kylie Miller will join us with our question of the week. Uh, just a little update here, Josh. You and I were called to a farm to look at some possible herbicide carryovers the producer was concerned about from last year's crop. As we got there, begin to look. Uh, I'm going to let you pick up from here and take off and tell the folks what, what we found and what they need to be aware of. Josh. All right. Thanks, Mr. R.L. Well, when we got to the field, one of the first things that was obvious was a, some plant lodging. That was mainly from early season alfalfa hopper curdling the base of the stem. And then as we saw a few dead plants here and there, due to probably lack of rotation and some type of disease, not sure of yet, but we're going to diagnose that later. But one thing that did stand out pretty significant in these lower areas on this clay soil what appeared to be manganese deficiency. And knowing that ground and how many times it gets saturated, those soils in that area I know have been running above seven in their pH. And that's one of the, that's where you can see some manganese deficiency. Your high pH soils, high organic matter soils, sandy soils, you know, if it's been dry for an extended period as well, you can see it. But what we'll, where we'll see it most often is it's going to be in our high pH soil areas or sandy soils in Louisiana. And this is one reason that we're talking about this now is we've seen it for the past couple of years showing up. It seems to be more and more. Um, so we, that's why, you know, we wanted to discuss this right well i know as you and i pulled up there with the producer and we stepped out of the truck it was very obvious on that first end of the field where we were at there was something going on Absolutely. but as we walked across the field the further away from the turn row we got the better it got mm -hmm. and you and i both were making comments about how i ain't gonna say saturated but full wet <laughs> the soil was profile it was full of moisture that's for sure and um you know Wet soils may help with uh, manganese availability, but those clay soils in, that, in those areas, I was talking to another guy and he's telling me his pH was around seven and a half, not far from there. So that's plenty high enough to see some manganese deficiency symptoms. And these soybeans that we were looking at, I think we said about R3, between R3 and R4, the growth stage they were at. And in these areas, that the lower areas of the field, definitely I think something should be done to address it. Do you think the magnesium was tied up with the saturated soils the plants just wasn't able to pick enough of it up? Or do you think there's possibly a deficiency in the soil? 
I think it's just the availability of manganese with the higher pH is the okay. biggest uh, issue. Not to say that it, we've got a lot of rain for the past several weeks, keeping the soil fairly saturated, which is going to prevent the root from being highly efficient at picking right. up nutrients okay. without oxygen. Okay. So, and I know you uh, you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about a, maybe a recommended treatment you, you offered him? Uh, mainly, it'll be some type of foliar applied herbicide. Plants only need small amounts of manganese, so you can apply it foliarly. Or look at using chelated forms of manganese. Um, a concern is if you will tank mix with glyphosate, and then you can get some compounds and soluble compounds forming with glyphosate and the manganese and especially if there's a hard water situation so best to treat the water with ams first of spray grade okay. and then add your glyphosate and then add your um, manganese um, won't you touch just a little bit on some of the symptoms of the deficiency that some folks may or may not be aware of like I told you that day in the field I can tell you from the the pattern there was a deficiency but I had to go to my book to be able to look to see exactly which one it was yes um, manganese is involved in photosystem too and water splitting so you're going to begin to see some chlorosis intervenal chlorosis and it can progress to be very pronounced uh, like yellow yellowing of the leaves you know, in those plants we were seeing mainly in the top part of the canopy. Um, it looked like it's been developing, and we were at that field last year. I was looking back through some pictures, and there was manganese deficiency thrown on those soybeans in that exact field we were in last year. Okay, okay. So. But that yellowing, the, the chlorosis between the, the veins. veins, but the vein itself still being... Green. Good and green. Yes, sir. Kind of a, a dead giveaway. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, and you were, I don't know if we ever talked rates as far as foliar application. No, they're each compound, depending on who they're buying from, will have their recommended rates. To apply, um, you can diagnose manganese deficiencies to be certain of it with a plant tissue test and generally speaking 21 parts per million uh, is considered deficient but now there's some limited well there's some data showing that 30 to 40 parts per million could even be deficient so you know and it was ironic I remember the producer telling us as soon as you said that oh yeah I just we did do some tissue samples and it did come back mildly deficient in 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 yep, manganese so, so basically he had already answered his questions <laughs> and all we done was kind of backed it up or confirmed it for him good yes sir good uh but manganese is one of these that we can foliar apply and get some results with yes sir it's since it's a micronutrient you can correct deficiencies with foliar applications okay all right. This uh, is this becoming a wide, wider spread issue than what we've seen in years past, or is it just one of those? Well, this ground's been beans behind beans for a while, not seeing any nitrogen on it. So pH is 
probably just getting higher and higher with all the rainfall. And okay. Other factors, you know, that waterlogged soils and those fields. I say waterlogged. Beans look great, except for you're seeing the manganese deficiencies and a few lodge plants here and there. And the, um, the disease plants, but yes, last year I saw that field, one on East Carroll near the river on some sandier soil, and it was severe manganese. It plants were stunted, bright yellow, and they ended up spraying it, I know, and turned it around pretty well. I don't know how many times they might have sprayed it though. Okay. Well, it just seems like this year, every time I've turned around, I've been looking at them, talking with you on them. It just seems like deficiencies on some of these macros are mm -hmm. showing up more this year. Didn't know it was cause of the wet spring we had, but I know what was it in corn? We had some sulfur and some zinc. zinc. <laughs> yes, <laughs> zinc showing up uh, now. This manganese and soybeans uh, is it? Is this something that we might could prevent? if we were on a good soil test program? It would definitely help diagnose some of the issues, especially with zinc and sulfur. Uh, manganese, I'm sure, I'm not sure of uh, how to go about correcting it in the soil okay. per se, but. Yeah, it's just, it's been ironic that, you know, this year we're, we're seeing more and more of these kind of, I'm gonna say strange effects and we'd had such a, a weird or different type spring, you know. Uh, so I just, you know, folks just need to be aware of these things and when you, in fact, we always asking folks to come up with ideas for the podcast and as soon as we got back in the truck there the other afternoon, that's the first thing you told me, hey, we need to do a podcast on this. <laughs> and so here we are. So. Again, we're, we're looking in this. We run across something. We're going to try to bring it to y'all. So, uh, Anything else on, on this, Josh, you need to say before we get out of here and join uh, Dennis and him? Um, just if they have any more questions, to call you, Mr. Dennis, Kylie. Um, y'all can get in contact with me if you need to. Just don't, don't hesitate to call. You know, we're here to try to help out. Exactly, and that's, that's what we tell folks all the time. You know, we can't help you with a problem if we don't know about it. And and things are, are different this year than what we've seen in years past, and they'll be different next year. So, uh, Josh, we thank you for joining us today. Well, and you. we're fixing to pass this off to Dennis and his interview uh, with Josie and, and, and nematodes. So. All right, Mr. R.L., I enjoyed it. Thanks. All right, thank you, Josh. Dennis, it's yours. Okay, I'm here today with Dr. Josie Rizende. She is the director of the Nematode Advisory Lab at LSU in Baton Rouge. She's up here today. She's been in Tensile Parish today. I think you were in Morehouse yesterday um, doing a guava root knot nematode survey. So welcome to the podcast, Josie. Thank you, Dennis. All right, tell us what, uh, I got your title right, didn't I? Okay. Yeah. yeah, you're 
You're out here digging in the dirt. You like <laughs> you took Charlie Overstreet's place for digging in the dirt. So but I, I'm kind of a postdoc research like research position. Okay, but yeah. it's it's still you know yeah. you're still digging. Yeah, charging the lot. <laughs> yeah, you, you count nematodes and you're digging in the dirt. Yes. <laughs> okay, so uh, tell us what is a guava root knot nematode? So this nematode it's a root knot species and it was found like last year here in Louisiana. This is a nematode that has been like causing serious problems um, in sweet potato in North Carolina. And last year, uh, Dr. Overstreet, he found this nematode in a sweet potato field here in Louisiana. And since this root knot species can cause like severe damage to sweet potato. Um, this year we decided to do this survey to visit fields uh, with root knot nematode problems because we want to make sure the species that we have in these fields is not the guava because uh, the southern root knot and the guava root knot, they are very similar in host um, they practically, they have like the same hosts and the morphology, if you look them under the microscope, they are very similar nematodes. So we want to make sure we didn't uh, misidentify this nematode here in Louisiana. Okay, well, we've been riding around Tinsaw Parish and today we've been in a cotton field, a corn field, and two bean fields. Yes. I hadn't seen a sweet potato yet. Other than on the experiment station, and they were wet. We didn't. We were right next to them. But so we really. So you're looking to see if it's expanded its area into different parts and different crops. Is that? Yes, because we can find root knot like in cotton fields, in soybean fields, and the guava nematode, like cotton, soybean, they are also hosts for the guava nematode. So we are taking these samples to bring back to the lab. We are doing. Uh, we are using some molecular tools to. Um, we extract the DNA from these nematodes, and we can identify the species. So we just like we hopefully we're gonna. What we wanna see, it's uh, that the southern root knot. It's actually the species that are is present in our fields, not the guava. So we, we just want to make sure of that. <laughs> okay, so you're, you're basically just finding out if we have it in yes. other places. Yes. I mean, if it's spread. Now, where did it, all right, let's get, where did it come from? It didn't just didn't show up in Morehouse Parish on its own. <laughs> no, yeah, like um, the farmer, he got sweet potato seeds from North Carolina. Okay. So, yeah, this nematode was carried like in this uh, seeds, okay. root so, seeds from so North Carolina. As long as we stay out of Morehouse Parish, we're all right. Is that what you're saying? So, okay. Well, I Hopefully. Mean, now, you didn't. You mentioned cotton and soybeans were a host, and we just came out of a cornfield, yes. which in the field that we're in actually is a traditional one, one that we've had tremendous root knot problems and we've worked with in the past. Is corn a host also? No, usually, like, we use corn to reduce the root knot populations. Okay. So, but it's still like you, if you collect samples from these fields, you're gonna see uh, the root knot, but like hopefully not high levels. Okay, all right, so it would still be present. Yes. Okay, um, 
Now, the other question is, is what do we do if we have it? So we are taking this survey because if we identify these species like here in Louisiana, we will need to do some work to avoid like the spreading of mm -hmm. this nematode because it can be like a really um, a serious problem for okay. our crops. Okay. Uh, and I guess one other question, is it like the root knot that once you get in clay soils, it's no longer, you don't have, we don't have root knot in clay soils. It's, no. And so it's similar. Yeah, it's more like sandy soil. It's the sandy yeah. stuff. Well, yeah. everywhere we went today, always is always had root knot and yes. So <laughs> you'll probably find some. So Hopefully. anything else that uh, we need to know? When will we get results? Next yeah, week? like. <laughs> yeah, we are doing some work, but I, I'm not sure if it can be that fast. <laughs> okay. Well, I just thought I'd ask. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a, now, nowadays it's an instant society, you know. We, yeah, you know, I so. know. <laughs> but seriously, when, when, like, to be, it'll be wintertime before you finally finish up? So what we are planning to do, like, we take these soil samples in the lab. Um, the plan is, like, to extract the nematodes from the soil. And if I detect the root knot species, we're going to put this soil in tomato plants which is a very good host for the root knot nematode. And we wait until the development of the galls to extract the females so we can start the process of DNA extraction and then the species identification okay. using the molecular tools. So you're in a grow your own program, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. I guess that's job security, I guess. Yeah. You know? So, all right, was there anything else we need to know? No, I think like, if you know like uh, fields like with root knot nematode problems, please you can give me a call, like contact me. We are collecting these samples. So yeah, we are doing this work and feel free to contact me to, so I can come sample in your field or if you wanna send me the samples. Yeah, okay. we are here good. doing this work. All right, well good. <laughs> well, like you said, like, like you, just, you just said, if anybody has problems with nematodes showing up in soybeans and silt loam, sandy soils, contact me, my, me, uh, Oriel Frazier, Kylie Miller. We'll help you get a sample and we'll get it to Josie or we'll call her and get her to come look. Sure. So, and uh, we thank you for being here and telling us about this. This is something, something new. We're trying to be ahead of the game. So thank <laughs> you, ma'am. Thank, thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks, Dennis and Josie, for that update on the guava nematode. Uh, important information we need. Kylie, uh, glad to see you've joined us here this afternoon. You're, we're now in uh, Concordia? I'm in Concordia today, yes. All right, good, good. Uh, what do you see going on down the southern end of our region? Uh, lots of rain, uh, with more predicted to come in this weekend. Um, lots of crop dusters getting busy in the air, getting doing a lot of spraying, um, but most but for the most part, we're out of the fields right now, wishing to get back into them. And uh, I've seen a lot of people pulling their combines out and starting going through that. So everybody's kind of starting to think about harvest, and hopefully maybe in the next couple of weeks, um, you know, we might get to start cutting some corn. So You know, it's ironic yeah, you mentioned that. I got a report today of a fellow over on the ridge that actually started cutting uh, some real high moisture corn, but he had the capability of going into some tanks, and, and he spread really thin so he's trying to get what he can early mm -hmm. 
that's exciting. I hope I hope you can get it all out. So. Yes, yes. Uh, tell you what I, I did find this week. I just thought about, I uh, had a guy call me, some late planted corn, went and looked at it, and the uh, earworms and the army worms had gotten into the ears and they were having a field day inside that ear. I, every ear was like that. Wow, uh, I've never seen that before. It was, it was tough. Uh, the only good thing was, you know, they the corn, I think, is getting far enough along into the dent that they're probably going to quit feeding on it anyway. It's going to get too hard for them. Uh, mm-hmm. I think my reports that I've seen, you know, uh, what it's something like 30 to 40 kernels per ear on every ear to equivalent to a, a bushel loss. So, you know, he, he's not going to lose but a couple of bushels probably. Mm-hmm. But so it, no treatment was... Uh, no treatments which are going with uh no there's nothing you can do for it they're down okay. inside that shuck and uh it was you know the the uh the bt corns but i don't think that bt works on these particular worms okay so okay. anyway just something unusual but something we normally won't see again because we this was some corn that was planted probably around the first of well it was approaching june it oh wow! Real, okay. It was really late, <laughs> really yeah, late. Like it. All right, but other than that, everybody, like you said, is waiting on harvest. Yeah, we're looking forward to getting that ball rolling. So yeah. get it out. <laughs> well, I tell you what, you uh, question of the yeah, of the week. Wanna... I got one for okay. you. Okay. Uh, right. With all the new regulations that's came about with the dicamba. Uh, what we're hearing may possibly be coming in the future with uh, uh, Gramoxone. How do these guys go about getting a private applicator's license? What does it entail? Well, um, what does it entail? First, you're going to have to pass a test. Um, in order to pass the test, um, you'll need to study the core manual, which you can go on the LSU Ag Center store website and purchase the core manual um, from that, and that's That'll help you with your getting, you know, your private or your commercial. You'll have to study that that same manual. Um, and then you'll have to apply to take the test. Um, as I understand it, you take the test on a computer now. So they only have a limited number of computers per, um, per station, I guess. So you have to kind of reserve your computer before you go. So what you'll do before you do that, you'll go on to the Louisiana Department of Ag and Forestry website and you'll click on the left side of the page there will be a section called pesticides and you'll go through reading all that and there will be a form on there called application for testing and you'll fill out, print that form out, fill that out and you'll send it to I guess where you're, I guess it goes to Baton Rouge. Yes, the address is on that page. Right, yeah, the address is on that page and that is in Baton Rouge. And you'll select where you want to take your test. For the Northeast region, Monroe is our office, so you'll probably want to go to Monroe. Um, if you're in my part of the world, you might want to go to Ellis or Baton Rouge. Um, but I've sent a lot of people to Monroe and had no problems with that. So, but yeah, um, and from there, there'll be a section on there where you will select what test you're looking to take. Um, if you're looking to just take your private applicator's license, it's just one box to check. And send that off, and then we'll be in touch with you to schedule your test. 
Okay. What's it cost? Um, it's nothing up front to take the test. I think it's a it's a fee of what twenty five dollars if you pass to get yeah. your license. Probably yeah. yes, yes. It's the same thing as a I renewal guess. fee. Right. Yeah. So until you pass, you won't pay that fee. Um, but um, let me think. Yeah, that's all. You, you'll just pay that once you once you pass, and you can take the test as many times as you need to. I assume. So there's no. Yes, way. I think they have you like. Fail it, you can what is it? They do have a time frame. I won't say like a week. If you mm-hmm. fail it, before you can come back and take it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not. It's nothing to worry about. Everyone, you know, goes through and reads that manual. Hasn't had a whole lot of trouble with it. Kim was doing some private applicator testing classes, and I got to attend one of those. And she basically goes through the book, and at the end, she'll offer a test at the end to see how you, you know. How you're doing you know you can kind of see where we're at see what you need to work on um those classes have been really helpful um i sent a guy to one and he went and passed the test on the first try and he was a guy that was scared that you know gave me every excuse in the world you know i haven't taken tests for a long time yeah but uh, he seemed to have done well and he's proud of himself for doing it so you know you gotta have that pesticide license so you might as well get started yep and like you said you know you have to have it now to even apply di- the dicamba, I hear that next year you may even have to have this same private applicators test before you can apply uh, gramoxin. Uh, so I think it's coming. The ball has started rolling. Everybody's going to start requiring you to have a test to apply anything, any of your restricted mm-hmm. pesticides. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's great. To be intimidated about once you read the book, you'll you'll see that it's not as scientific as, as you're you know expecting. And of course, if anybody needs a book, um, there are some parish offices that do sell books. I, our office will sell you know some core manuals. I think the Franklin office in Catahoula does as well. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's the, the website is an easy place to get get that information. Yes. Yeah. Now, one thing I was told by a guy that went and took it on the computer, you know, the old test that we used to give here in the office before they stopped us, it was a 100-question test. Mm-hmm. The computerized test is like 80-something questions. It's not the full 100. Okay. Because he blew my mind when he told me, you know, I'm used to the old test, 100 questions, one point apiece. Uh, he said I made a... a, a 68 and a half. I said, <laughs> how can you make a 68 and a half on a, on a 100 point <laughs> test, you know, a 100 question test? He said, oh, it wasn't, but like, and I'm saying 80, I don't forgot what he told me, but I right, said, okay. Yeah. He missed one question more than he should have. Mm-hmm. And uh, he asked me, you know, he had a couple of questions he had trouble with. He asked me about, I gave him the answer. He went back and studied a little bit more and went back and, and passed it. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah, it's nothing to be scared of. No. It's just something you got to do. Just, just study that manual. I tell my guys to study the questions at the end of the manual. Mm-hmm. At the end of every chapter. If you can study those questions, know the answer to them, you got a real good chance of passing. Can't guarantee it, right. but you can. <laughs> you know, because some folks I'm are like me. They kind of clam up when they go in there and see that word oh, test. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And I, like I tell my people, too, I'm always willing to sit down with them and go through and highlight and talk about some of the things that are in that book. Uh, of course, I don't have the test. I don't know what's on it. But I right. can tell you, I've got the book. This is what it's going to be. You know, let's talk about it. So Exactly. Um, I'm always willing to do that. Exactly. Well, Kylie, we're running out of time for another program. Uh, thank you for joining us this afternoon and uh, answering that question on the uh, pesticide licensing. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for joining in. We appreciate your time and, and, uh, and hope you all enjoy the program. And again, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact Kylie in Concordia, Dennis in Tinsaw, or myself here in Madison. Until next time, y'all be safe, and we'll hopefully have some harvest information maybe by the next time. Okay, see you later, Kylie. Bye. The Louisiana Delta Crop Podcast is produced by the LSU Ag Center Extension Service. For more information, visit the LSUAgCenter.com or contact your local extension office.